Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the seventh audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will discuss privilege through the lens of race, two, racism and anti-racist work in Canada and the United States, three, black feminist thought, four, Asian American feminism and Asian Canadian feminism, five, an introduction to police abolition and defund the police movements. This is a lot to cover and there is so much to explore. As you know, we've been discussing race and racism as part of the discussion in most lectures and that will continue. Today's lecture will include multiple sound audio clips because it is important to center the voices of people be most affected by the topic we are discussing. I can only play segments of the clips due to issues of copyright. However, I have provided links to the full clips in the transcripts so that you can listen to the entire clip. Let's get started. Today's song is Bamba Estéreo's Soy Yo. Bamba Estéreo is a Colombian band founded in the capital, Bogota, in 2005. According to Mejia, the band's name is a Colombian term for a really cool, awesome, badass party. If you have never seen the music video, I recommend watching it. The song focuses on overcoming criticism and being true to oneself. It is about going against the current and being true to yourself. There is a celebration in one's resilience. I chose the song for today's lecture because of its joyfulness. Celebrating joy is a part of the toolkit needed in the work in overcoming racist forces. Black lesbian feminist poet Audre Lorde wrote about how caring for oneself is an act of resistance while she lived with breast cancer. There's also the Black Joy movement, which works alongside Black Lives Matter, which celebrates the happiness, playfulness, and freedom that undergird social justice. Adrienne Marie Brown's 2019 book, Anthology, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, also speaks to the power inherent in being delighted. Joy and pleasure are important to remember. Anti-racist activism is not just about fighting against, it is fighting for, it is fighting for the kinds of worlds and futures that we want. This is an idea that we will discuss more during the lecture on technology. It will come up when we discuss Ruha Benjamin's work and how she looks to Afrofuturism to emphasize the importance of imagination and dreaming of possible futures. Right now, she argues, most of us are trapped in the visions of the future of a few millionaires and billionaires. Anti-racist activism involves imagining and working towards new futures. Black feminism is not alone in wanting to celebrate joy and imagine new futures and reclaim the past. One of the barriers to creating these new visions of the future for oppressed groups is that there is a drain on their resources and having to educate people with privilege about their oppression. In her work, Sister Outsider, Essays and Speeches, Audre Lorde writes, start quote, 
Black and third world people are expected to educate white people as to our humanity. Women are expected to educate men. Lesbians and gay men are expected to educate the heterosexual world. The oppressors maintain their privilege and invade and evade their responsibility for their own actions. There's a constant drain of energy which might be better used in redefining ourselves and devising realistic scenarios for altering the present and constructing the future." End quote. Gord here discusses the ways that people with privilege demand the energy of oppressed peoples in demanding that they be educated about the oppressions rather than educate themselves. Spending the time educating the privileged group ends up disadvantaging the oppressed group more as it steals energy from other kinds of world-building. Ward published this work in 1984, thus the use of the term third-world people. While there were plenty of resources available in 1984 for people to educate themselves about oppression, today especially it is possible to educate oneself based on all the books, videos, and resources that have been assembled about anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-heterosexist work. This spring and summer, we have seen many of these books and reading lists circulated. I've just said the word privilege a lot, but what do I mean by privilege? Privilege is a special right or advantage available only to a particular person or group of people. When we are talking about inequality, it means that some people are treated better or have more access to resources based on their race, gender, class, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or able-bodiedness. Privilege doesn't mean that your life is problem-free. Privilege means that you have systematic advantages over others because of a factor like your race, gender, or class. Even if you have privilege, you can still feel hardship. However, if you're a white person, the hardship that you're experiencing is not because of your race. Life is full of pain and suffering. People you love will die. Your heart may get broken. You may experience physical pain and injury. Privilege doesn't mean that your life isn't hard. Just one of the factors that make your life harder won't be based on your privileged identity. You may be privileged in one area of your life, but not the other. A white woman will experience racial privilege, but will face oppression based on her gender. If she is rich, she'll experience class privilege. If she is queer, she'll experience oppression based on her sexual orientation. Intersectionality allows us to think through not only these privileges and oppressions, but also allows us to think about how her gendered experiences in the world will be racialized and her experiences of being white will also be gendered and so forth. We all have different forms of privilege. White people have racial privilege in our society. Men have gender privilege. Rich people have class privilege. Straight people have privilege because we live in a heteronormative society, which is a society that privileges straight people. People have privilege based on their able-bodiedness. There's a video clip that I actually recommend that you watch all five minutes of, the decoded video on privilege, which I linked to in the transcript. Privilege is defined as a special right or advantage available only to a particular person or group of people. In the context of social inequality, it means that some groups of people are treated better than others based on their race, gender, class, sexuality, or physical ability. Now here's the thing about privilege. Everyone has it. You've got privilege! You've got privilege! We've all got privilege! So for example, as an able-bodied person, I've never struggled to find a bathroom that I can comfortably access or gone out to lunch with friends to only realize that I can't find a parking spot to get into the restaurant or even fit through the door. When I turn on my favorite show, I can watch and enjoy with ease because I don't require captions or descriptive narration, which too many shows don't have. So... In this clip, we hear Ramsey 
Francesca Ramsey, host of MTV's Decoded, saying, as an able-bodied person, I've never had to struggle find a bathroom that I can comfortably access or gone out to lunch with friends to find out that I can't find a parking spot at the restaurant or even fit through the door, right? And she's talking about this able-bodied privilege. These are also things that an able-bodied person might not notice. Because of able-bodied privilege, unless you're aware of these issues, if they don't affect you, you might not realize that these barriers exist for some people. As Ramsey says later on in the clip, acknowledging privilege isn't about shame. It's about acknowledging and challenging the system that perpetuates inequality. Ignoring the problem or refusing to acknowledge that it exists just allows it to continue and thrive. She adds, privilege doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you've had everything handed to you or have never had challenges or struggles. It means that there are some challenges and struggles that you won't experience because of who you are. So when you have lived your whole life with something, it can be hard to understand what it's like for those without. End quote. This is why it is important to think about the privileges that we may not see. This brings us to Peggy McIntosh's classic text, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, from 1989. In this text, McIntosh is particularly concerned with white privilege. She writes, White privilege is like an invisible, weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. White people are taught to think of their lives as morally neutral, normative, and average, and also ideal, so that when we work to benefit others, this is seen as work that will allow them to be more like us. She continues, whiteness protected me from many kinds of hostility, distress, and violence, which I was being subtly trained to visit in turn upon people of color. For this reason, the word privilege now seems to be misleading. We usually think of privilege as being a favored state, whether earned or confirmed by luck or birth, yet some of the conditions I've described here work systematically to over-empower certain groups. Such, such privilege simply confers dominance because of one's race or sex. Since racism, sexism, and heterosexism are not the same, the advantages associated with them should not be seen as the same. In addition, it is hard to disentangle aspects of unearned advantage that the rest that rest more on social class, economic class, race, religion, sex, and ethnic identity than on other factors. Still, all the oppressions are interlocking, as the members of the Comahee River Collective pointed out in their Black Feminist Statement of 1977, end quote. Here, McIntosh, like Ramsey, speaks to the way that privilege is not always visible to those who have privilege. The rest of the document functions like a worksheet. The examples of privilege that she lists vary from small things to large things. Some are, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed, and when I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is, and I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race, and if I want to, I can be pretty sure of finding a publisher for this piece on white privilege, and I can be pretty sure of having my voice heard in a group in which I am the only member of my race, and I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Here she speaks to the economic, social, and cultural examples of privilege. These examples speak to the ways that privilege, and particularly white privilege, 
mean that one's voice is heard, when stories are told, and one has access to resources, they may be things that a white person has taken for granted. One of the examples that seems to stick out for a lot of my students over the years is the example McIntosh gives for band-aids, that a skin-colored band-aid matches white skin. The idea of skin-colored as a label as being for white people. The example of the band-aid is so powerful because it is on the one hand something so small, but also shows how pervasive privilege is. McIntosh's list is powerful because it points to the very overt situations and microaggressions. Microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults toward any group, particularly culturally marginalized group groups. To put it another way, microaggressions are the kind of remarks, questions, or actions that are painful because they have to do with a person's membership in a group that's discriminated against or subject to stereotypes. A key part of what makes them so disconcerting is that they happen casually and frequently, yet a lifetime of microaggressions add up. The Band-Aid example also points to the ways in which the people with privileges needs are prioritized. We can see this in the ways we have talked about in class so far of how white women would use their white privilege to dominate some feminist activist groups and prioritize their own needs. Racism and white supremacy existed and still exist in some feminist organizations and organizing. We can also see examples of gender privilege within anti-racist movements. As I mentioned previously, the work of Sarah Evans's Personal Politics talks about the sexism women experience within civil rights organizations. We can see this too in the way that Cesar Chavez's work gets far more attention than Dolores Huerta's work in the United Farm Workers Movement. Both were important civil rights activists and labor leaders, but because of the way that gender privilege functions, Chavez's work is celebrated more. We can see the ways in which women of color facing gender and racial discrimination have had to fight oppression on multiple fronts and the ways that their contributions have been minimized or written out of historical accounts of activism. The histories of movements then become stories of great men. We can see this in the way that civil rights activist Ella Baker, a national officer and key figure in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, one of the founders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and a prime mover in the creation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is not discussed in schools while children learn the names of male leaders in the movement, such as Martin Luther King Jr. We can see this in the way that the histories will celebrate or focus on the image of mostly male Black Panthers, of the Black Power movement with machine guns, and not on the Black Panther breakfast program that fed thousands of Black children before school and focused on education and was run primarily by women. It is from these conditions that we see the creation of the work of Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, the Kamahee River Collective, Audre Lorde, Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks, and as we will discuss today, Patricia Hill Collins, Alicia Garza, and Robin Maynard. I've also included a link in the transcript to the Black Feminism Resource Guide by the New York Public Library if you're looking for more text, and a link for the Black History Month Library, which contains more resources. Patricia Hill Collins 
is a distinguished university professor of sociology at the University of Maryland College Park. She is also the former head of the Department of African American Studies at the University of Cincinnati and the past president of the American Sociological Association Council. In Black Feminist Thought, Patricia Hill Collins explores the words and ideas of Black feminist intellectuals as well as those of African American women outside of academia. She provides an interpretive framework for the work of such prominent Black feminist th thinkers such as Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Alice Walker, and Audre Lorde. She writes, starting quote, Black feminism remains important because U.S. Black women constitute an oppressed group. As a collectivity, U.S. Black women participate in a dialectical relationship linking African American women's oppression and activism. Dialectical relationships of this sort mean that two parties are opposed and opposite. As long as Black women's subordination within intersecting oppressions of race, class, gender, sexuality, and nation persist, Black feminism as an activist response to that oppression will remain needed. End quote. Patricia Hill Collins, like the other Black feminists whose work we have read, utilizes a framework that emphasizes the idea of the multiplicity of oppressions, and she does this in order, as she writes, to foster both Black women's empowerment and conditions of social justice. In the text, of which I assign the introduction, she reclaims Black women's history and emphasizes the important intellectual contributions made by Black women intellectuals, all the while reminding readers of the exploitation of Black women's reproductive and productive labor. There are two sections that I want to emphasize in particular. The first is when she writes about how this book has changed over the years as she has released newer editions. She writes, this book reflects one stage in my ongoing struggle to regain my voice. Over the years, I've tried to replace the external definitions of my life, forwarded by dominant groups with my own self-defined viewpoint. My analysis, of, my analysis of oppression is also more complex in this edition, in part because neither empowerment nor social justice can be achieved without some sense of what one is trying to change. Whereas both editions rely on a paradigm of intersecting oppressions to analyze Black women's experiences, this edition provides a more comprehensive treatment. Race, class, and gender studies were being established when I wrote my first edition. Just as this area of inquiry has greatly expanded since that writing, so has my treatment of this framework. For example, in this, defin in this edition, I broaden my analysis beyond race, class, and gender and include sexuality, as a form of oppression, end quote. So here, Patricia Hill Collins points readers to the ways that the analyses of power within Black feminist thought has developed over time to take into account other axes of power, building upon the idea of intersectionality. She also writes about how this text may look different from other academic texts. She writes, start quote, oppressed groups are frequently placed in the situation of being listened to only if we frame our ideas in the language that is familiar to and comfortable for a dominant group. This requirement often changes the meaning of our ideas and works to elevate the ideas of dominant groups. In this volume, by placing African-American women's ideas in the center of analysis, I not only privilege those ideas, but encourage white feminists, African-American men, and all others to investigate the similarities and differences among their own standpoints and those of African-American women, end quote. I want to highlight this quote in particular because here she draws our attention to the power of the voice. If you remember in the first lecture, I discussed the idea of the power of the voice by Bell Hooks. What is the power? What is the voice of power? 
And how is it conveyed? Here, Collins pushes back on dominant writing conventions. She wants to emphasize a different kind of voice, her voice. She also acknowledges that this voice may not be legible to certain power structures. It might not be taken seriously, but she no longer wants to translate her voice so that the privileged groups may find it more accessible and palatable. In this quote, she also speaks toward the idea of standpoint theory, something we will discuss in more detail if you take the GSFS 300 Feminist Methods class with me next term. So, how does this idea of the voice and whose voices are listened to relate to the current Black Lives Matter movement? Let's start with what is Black Lives Matter? I want us to listen to part of a 2014 video with Alicia Garza discussing what Black Lives Matter is. I've included a link to the clip here in the transcript, which has closed captions. Black Lives Matter is a project that's designed to celebrate the humanity, the brilliance, and resilience of Black people in a world that devalues Black life. And we use Black Lives Matter as a place where folks can come together online and offline to collaborate, to strategize, to build power together. We've seen the hashtag take off, but we've also seen spins on that hashtag, like all lives matter. What do you think about that? Well, I think that it uh, points towards a utopian reality that we don't live in right now. So when you look at what's going on in the streets right now and the protests that have been basically nonstop for a couple of months, do you think that this is the birth of a new national movement? And if so, what is the movement? Young people have decided um, that enough is enough and that it's no longer time for slow incremental change or for compromise. And that what we need right now are radical shifts in our social system, in our economic system, and in our criminal system. And we need folks who have been in the movement for a long time to really be supporting their capacity to win. Do you think that Al Sharpton should actually step aside, not be in front of the camera, and maybe put forward a younger face? It's a different moment today, um, and so the needs are different, the conditions are different, and so it's really important that leaders, and elders in particular, are listening to what's changed and listening to what's needed from those who are directly and mostly impacted. Can you name some of the younger people who are just as involved that we might not know about? Folks like the Black Youth Project, Folks like Millennial Activists United in Ferguson and Tribex in, in Ferguson and St. Louis, Hands Up United in Ferguson, the Dream Defenders, Dignity and Power Now in Los Angeles. So there's obviously so much momentum right now for the movement and the news cycle is very much tuned into what's going on, but where does it go from here? Making sure that we are really moving towards pushing for our demands to be adopted um, in, at the federal level, at the state level, and at the municipal level that there is adequate and consistent data that is collected across the country um, about police killings and officer-involved shootings. Right now, police departments individually can decide what they track and what they don't, how they report and how they don't. So we need a consistent standard for that. Another demand that young people are moving in this moment um, is that there be accountability measures attached to that data. And so if a police department um, shows a pattern of discriminatory policing, that they wouldn't be receiving federal funding, in other words, our tax dollars, um, to promote and continue racism. There's been tons of peaceful protests all over. There's also been some incidents of vandalism and things getting a little more violent. What tactics do you advocate and where do you draw the line? We advocate those types of tactics that really um, shake up the comfort level. What do you say to people who, critics, what do you say to critics who say, you know, smashing property windows and storefronts and some looting is actually counterproductive to the movement? My response to that would be 
Do we have the same level of outrage when a window gets broken as we do when a young black person is killed in our communities? And if we don't, there's a real disparity there and we need to figure out what that is. So I decided to play this clip because one, it is from 2014. And I want us to remember that while the Black Lives Matter movement is being discussed a lot in 2020, it is not new. Two, I also want us to think about who the media puts forward as the leaders of the Black Lives Matter and who is invited to speak. Alicia Garza is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter hashtag in 2013. She's a Black Jewish queer woman. She started the movement and hashtag with two other Black women, Opal Tometi and Patrice Coolers, who also identifies as queer. And after the July 2013 acquittal of George Zimmerman of murder and the death of Travis travel on martin on july 13 2013 she wrote on facebook stop saying we are not surprised that's a damn shame in itself i continue to be surprised at how little black lives matter and i will continue that stop giving up on black life black people i love you i love us our lives matter end quote so this movement was started over seven years ago by three black and queer women however as crenshaw discussed so often black women's lives are pushed to the side in the most dominant activism of the movement black cis women's and black trans women's lives are so often not included within the dominant thread of the movement this is where hashtag say her name movement comes in hashtag save her name pushes back on misogynoir Misogynoir is misogyny directed towards Black women, where race and gender both play roles in bias. The term was coined by queer Black feminist Moya Bailey in her 2021 book, Misogynoir Transformed. She writes, Misogynoir is a term I created in 2008 to describe the anti-Black racist misogyny that Black women experience, particularly in U.S. visual and digital culture. A side note, Moya Bailey is speaking as part of the Disrupting Disruptions, Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications and Technologies Practices Speaker and Workshop Series on September 15th, 2021, to speak about her new book, Trans Misogynoir Transformed, and the recording will be available on the series website, which I've linked in the transcript. In the forthcoming lecture on popular culture, beauty, and sports, I will briefly touch on the topic of skin bleaching and the harmful promotion of light skin beauty standards. That topic relates to the larger topic of colorism. As defined by sociologist Margaret Hunter, colorism or skin color stratification is a process that privileges light-skinned people of color over dark in areas such as income, education, housing, and the marriage market. Understanding colorism is an important component of discussions around race. For more discussions on this topic, see Margaret Hunter's The Persistent Problem of Colorism, Skin Tone Status and Inequality from Sociology Compass in 2007. I've linked to that article in the transcript. I want us to also look at racism and anti-racism, anti-racism, particularly within the Canadian context. This is why I have assigned the chapter on state violence and black lives from Robin Maynard's Policing Black Lives, published in 2017. This is one of the books that you can write your first assignment about. Robin Maynard is active in the Black Lives Matter Toronto protests and is currently doing a PhD at the University of Toronto. She was formerly based in Montreal. Maynard has a long history of involvement in community activism and advocacy. She has been part of a grassroots movement against racial profiling, police violence, detention, and deportation for over a decade and has an extensive work history in harm reduction-based service provision serving sex workers, drug users, incarcerated women, and marginalized youth in Montreal. 
I signed her book because a story we often hear in Canada is that racism is something that happens in the United States, but not here in Canada. That Canada is made up of the multicultural salad rather than the melting pot of the United States. This myth allows certain Canadians, particularly white Canadians, to forget or to not acknowledge or to not learn about the history of slavery in Canada, the segregation of Canadian schools, the obliteration of Africaville, the predominantly black community in Halifax, Nova Scotia, during the 1960s movement of urban renewal that raised similarly racialized neighborhoods across Canada, and ongoing violence against black communities in Canada. James McGill, for which this university is named, enslaved black and indigenous people. These histories continue to affect our current realities. Maynard's Policing Black Lives State Violence in Canada from Slavery to Present peels back Canada's veneer of multiculturalism and tolerance, traces the violent realities of anti-blackness from the slave ships to prisons, classrooms, and beyond. Maynard provides readers with the first comprehensive account of nearly 400 years of state-sanctioned surveillance, criminalization, and punishment of Black lives in Canada. The book traces the still-living legacy of slavery across multiple institutions, shedding light on the state's role in perpetuating contemporary Black poverty and unemployment, racial profiling, law enforcement violence, incarceration, immigration detention, deportation, exploitative migrant labor practices, disproportionate child removal, and low graduation rates. Emerging from a critical race feminist framework that insists that all Black lives matter, Maynard uses an intersectional approach to anti-Black racism through which he addresses the unique and understudied impacts of state violence as it is experienced by Black women, Black people with disabilities, as well as queer, trans, and undocumented Black communities. Robin Maynard has given a lot of interviews and continues to do so. In 2017, she did an interview with CBC that explains the impetus for her writing the book. I've included a link to the nine-minute interview in the transcript. The video includes captions. I do want to note that if you watch the video, there are images of police violence beginning at the 3.50 mark to 4.05 and also around the eight-minute mark. I'm going to play a section of the audio from that video now. I mean, I think we're living really in the era of Black Lives Matter uh, when we're really starting to look at the grossly disproportionate police killings that black civilians are incurring, uh, the, inca the over-incarceration of black communities, the way that black youth are being streamlined out of schools uh, and expelled grossly disproportionately across the country. Uh, of course, the crisis of carding and racial profiling that's existing, you know, in Kingston, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Edmonton, all across the country. Um, I feel that we really didn't have a historical perspective that made sense of all of this. If we think about the United States, I think many of us have an understanding, of course, that the history of enslavement and slavery in the United States has led to the ongoing conditions that are faced by black populations there. But in Canada, very few people are aware, actually, of the fact that slavery was legal for over 200 years in this country. And are not aware, for example, of the fact that, I mean, the last segregated school in Canada that segregated black students from white actually closed in 1983. So I think that there's really um, a lack of understanding of the long-standing legacy of anti-black racism from slavery that has led us to this crisis point that we're uh, experiencing in the present. This book, book, of course, is about the contemporary world, but, but it's also about the way in which we see or the way in which we imagine Canadian history. What is it that we don't understand about our history in relation to anti-blackness that we need to? 
um, I think something that people really don't understand is really the history of, you know, these assumptions of linking black people to criminality, this assumption that black people are less able to feel pain, that black people are dangerous, that these understandings and ways of treating and seeing black people actually stem back to the history of slavery, when black people were considered property, when they were considered not humans, uh, when black people were considered criminal just for, you know, daring to uh, to escape bondage to, they were called runaway slaves and treated as, as criminals, right? So I think that we don't often understand that uh, so many of the really negative perceptions and really the horrific treatment of black people across state institutions is something that really has, you know, a legacy that, that can be traced back 400 years. And yet, when a lot of people look at Canadian history in relation to black people, they see Canada as being, or was, a sanctuary. This, this was a place where, where formerly enslaved peoples came to, to escape from their condition in the United States. What's wrong with that understanding? That version of Canadian history is very narrow and very misleading in its scope because often in that narrative, uh, when you look at sort of Canada as the place of sanctuary for black people fleeing the, through the Underground Railroad, it, it often doesn't mention that actually people were, could be legally enslaved in Canada only 30 years before that. It also doesn't talk about, you know, in Ontario where many black people were fleeing too in the era of the Underground Railroad. They actually, that was when uh, legalized uh, segregated schooling was instituted. So we often don't actually look at the many forms of oppression that were actually created and recreated in Canada, including, you know, segregation across many aspects of public life, black people not being able to be in some towns after dark until the mid-20th century. So it's a very selective reading of history to look at it as only a place of, of sanctuary, when actually we can see very many moments in Canadian history of racial violence that's been directed at black populations so, as well. So how do we see anti-blackness manifested in the here and now? You know, oftentimes we see state violence as being police brutality. But in your book, you talk about other kinds of state violence. Can you perhaps talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, of course, police brutality is a very important element of how that takes place. According to one study, black people are 10 times more likely to be killed by the police than white. But we often don't look at, for example, the way that black families are subject to, you know, being separated by the child welfare system at grossly disproportionate rates. We don't look at the harm that that actually incurs on young black children and on black parents. We often don't look at the way, the dehumanizing ways that black kids are actually treated in schools. I mean, for example, if you look to the case just last year of a six-year-old girl weighing 48 pounds who was handcuffed together by the wrists and the ankles in her, in her school because they said that she was, uh, it was to protect her, herself and others, right? So I think that we often don't look at these many other locations that black people are also subjected to, you know, disproportionate surveillance and as well violence at times. So in this section of the interview, Robin Maynard discusses the history of slavery, the history of school segregation, and the history of black children being forcibly removed from their families. She also speaks to the phenomenon of brown or black faces in high places, which is the phenomenon where you have a few individuals who can rise through the ranks, but if you look to the levels of poverty and structural oppression, the racism within Canada is quite apparent. This also speaks to the question of tokenism. Tokenism is the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to do a particular thing, especially by recruiting a small number of people from underrepresented groups in order to give the appearance of sexual or racial equality within a workforce. This does not result in structural change. The Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and Canada build upon understandings of these histories, seeking to create a more socially just world. A key focus for this movement since 2013 has been on police violence and the disproportionate surveillance, arrest, assault, and killing of black people by the police. 
Black Lives Matter protests have focused on policies such as stop and frisk in New York, where police could stop anyone on the street and frisk them, focusing particularly on black and brown communities. In Toronto, there was organizing against the practice of carding, where police officers would force black and brown people to produce identification. In Montreal, police officers have arrested and killed black people at rates higher than white people. In 2020, after police officers killed George Floyd, we have seen a rise of demonstrations against police violence, with less attention given to the killing of emergency medical technician Breonna Taylor. The defund the police movement has gained more popularity as more people are made aware of the gigantic budgets of police departments and the militarization of police departments when schools, healthcare, libraries, and other programs that could lead to safer communities where people can thrive are underfunded. I have included a link in the transcript to Minneapolis-based organization MPD 150's zine, which explains the movement to, defend the, to defund the police in more detail. I've also included a link in the transcript to transformharm.org, which provides more resources about transformative justice. One key point made by scholar Dorothy Roberts, author of Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, amongst other important works, is that in the move to defund police, we must be careful to not glamorize child protective services, social work, medicine, and educational institutions because these very institutions have also been used as sites of control, surveillance, and policing. She warns that if we are not careful, what we might merely do is shift policing from the police to these other sites. Ruha Benjamin, Yeshi Miller, Sophia Noble, Meredith Broussard, Virginia Eubanks, Joy Bulamwini, Mimi Onuaha, and others warn about the ways that technology and data collection can be used as forms of surveillance and policing, even without the police. Angela Davis, a longtime Black feminist activist, philosopher, and abolitionist, speaks to the current phenomenon in this clip. Be social. What we are witnessing are very new demands for who knows how long we've been calling for um, accountability for individual police officers responsible uh, for um, what amounts to lynchings, for um, continuing the whole tradition of extrajudicial lynching, but um, under, uh, the, 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 um, under the code of the law. Um, what we are seeing now are new demands, demands to demilitarize the police, demands to defund the police, demands to dismantle the police and envision uh, different modes of public safety. We're, we're asked now to consider uh, how we might imagine justice in the future. This is a very exciting moment. I don't know if we have ever experienced uh, of this kind of global challenge to racism and to the consequences of slavery and colonialism. In this clip, Angela Davis asks us to consider how we might imagine justice in the future and to imagine new forms of community safety. She states that, I don't know if we've ever experienced the kind of global challenge to racism and to consequences of slavery. Angela Davis says anti-racism protests around the world are at a very exciting moment. 
The defund the police movement is also tied to the prison abolition movement. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is a leading prison abolitionist. Gilmore discusses how, like the defund the police movement, abolition is not about getting rid of prisons to save money, but rather to invest in people and community, into education, into community support, and the kinds of programs that help people thrive. There is significant overlap between the defund the police and privileged abolition movements, including their focus on racism, needing to invest in communities, and also the ways that people with disabilities are oftentimes targets of police violence. Black women have been leading the charge in much of this work. Here, too, we can see the difference between not being racist and choosing to be anti-racist, choosing to invest in and commit oneself to the process of anti-racist work. Of course, when we discuss race and racism in Canada and the United States, we need to look at the racism against other communities of color as well. Since the pandemic, we have seen an uptick in the amount of racism and hate crimes directed against East Asian communities within Canada and the United States. The Asian American Feminist Collective has released multiple zines to talk about Asian American feminist experiences. In their first zine, they write, Drawing from the 1977 Combahee River Collective Statement, a document written by a collective of Black socialist feminists, we believe that the personal is political. Our politics are grounded in our experiences as Asian Americans. We seek to address the multidimensional ways with which the Asian American community, particularly women, queer, and or trans and gender nonconforming people, confront systems of power. Transnational, cultural, economic, and geopolitical configurations of racism, capitalism, and colonialism position us differently in relation to each other and to other communities of color. We are deeply indebted to the ways of Black feminist thought, third world feminist movements in the late 60s and 70s, and women of color feminism, which enable us to think and act critically through our own positionalities to address how systems of global racial capitalism, anti-Black racism, settler colonialism, and xenophobia impact our communities. We are both vulnerable and complicit within these structures, and Asian American feminism is our ongoing orientation and reorientation towards a politics that can account for and address the perpetuated historical legacies of racialized, gendered, and colonial violence. Because we bring our feminism, our histories to feminism, an Asian American feminist movement allows us to draw upon our own lived experiences, material conditions, and historical contexts to move beyond narrow bids for national, political, and economic inclusion, and instead push towards other pathways for justice, end quote. Here, they draw on the legacies of Black feminism and take an intersectional approach to their work. I recommend looking at their most recent scene about care in the time of corona, which focuses on this particular moment. I linked in the transcript to their resource page. So, while Asian American and Asian Canadian women experience differences, there are also similarities in the kinds of racism they experience, in part due to the intertwined racist immigration histories within the United States and Canada, which include Chinese exclusion acts, Japanese internment, and more. It is because of these connected histories that Dr. Joanne Lee from University of Victoria, teaching in women and gender studies, talks about how she pioneered the term North American Asian feminism and elaborates on the histories of the involvement that Asian women had in Western feminisms. I'm going to play a bit of that clip now. We were at an Asian 
Women's Studies Conference that UBC put on, and I had written a paper to present. And the reason I thought about North American and not Canadian or American, and why I took a hemispheric and continental approach to it, was that if you read any of the historical research on migration and immigration and our settlement in North America, that Canada and the United States uh, shared very similar legislative frameworks for treating the other, the migrants. And also that the way in which ethnic studies had approached the ethnic minority groups was initially to claim their presence in the nation. But if we're trying to decolonize and if we're trying to stand in solidarity with indigenous groups and indigenous claims to sovereignty, that whole premise has to be thrown out the window. So what I'm trying to signal in North American Asian feminisms is that all of the categories, the category of North American and in that Canada and and U.S. and to a certain extent Mexico too, are all held up for question. What counts as Asianness is held up for question. What counts as feminism is held up for question. So all of those are in, under in the clip, she speaks about the usefulness of this term to hold up for question and interrogate what it means to North American, be North American, what it means to be Asian, and what it means to be feminist. She also discusses the contention around this category. She received pushback from some women of color who saw this as a term of breaking solidarity, by some South Asian women as seeing this as a term of homogenizing experiences, and what the reliance on or disruption of the nation state means for building solidarity with indigenous communities and against the project of empire. I bring in this clip because it is important to acknowledge that there are also issues of racism within communities of people of color. Korea Angry is the pen name for the comic artist cartoonist who is a self-identified Korean-American immigrant woman. She addresses the issues of racism and sexism within her puppet-based comments. She writes the captions in English and Korean. I've included a link to her Instagram in the transcript, as well as one image from the comic I will discuss. On July 3rd, 2020, she posted a comic about why the Black Lives Matter movement matters to Korean Americans. She discusses the issue about racism within her own community and how it is important to address this and commit oneself to anti-racist work. Let us remember that race is a social construct, but it is a social construct that has wide-ranging implications. It is a social construct that affects people's access to healthcare, access to education, safety, access to clean water, air, and food. In future lectures, we will talk about environmental racism. Race and anti-racist work will continue to guide our discussions. Korea Angry is one of many artists who discusses issues of racism. Art is an important medium for communication about racism. Art and music enable us to hear a wider range of different voices. It is one of the reasons I play a clip of a song in each lecture. Today I have talked about a large range of, of topics, and there are still so many components we have yet to address. Learning about anti-racism and unlearning the racism that we are socialized with takes a lifetime of work. This is the last lecture for Unit 1. For the McGill students enrolled in the GSFS 200 course in the fall of 2021, remember that there will be no new material next week. There are also optional TA sessions in which you can discuss the material of the first unit. Writing assignment number one is due on Tuesday, September 28th at 11.59 p.m. Montreal Eastern Time. Remember that everyone is automatically granted up to one week extension, but any assignments received after the official 
deadline of September 28th will not receive comments and any assignments received more than seven days after the due date of September 28th will receive a zero. The first open note quiz number one will be released by Wednesday, September 29th and is due on Friday, October 1st at 11.59 p.m. Montreal Eastern Time. There will be no extensions granted for the quiz. We look forward to reading your work. I hope you have a nice day. All the video songs, images, and graphics used in podcasts and transcript belong to their respective owners and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F Panska, Stranska, Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's bell calendar, a.wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted and unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandate purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and privacy, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.